Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the editor of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. This podcast engages authors from recent AJHP publications who will give us an inside look at their research and explore the impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes. Today, we'll be discussing the 2022 ASHP, ASHP Foundation Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests are Dean Joseph DePiro, Dean and the Archie O. McCallie Chair at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy, Dr. Benita Patel, Vice President of Pharmacy Services at Memorial Hermann Health System, and Dr. Francesca Cunningham, Director of the Center for Medication Safety, Associate Chief Consultant, and Program Director of Outcomes Assessment at the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, Pharmacy Benefits Management Services. Joe, Fran, Benita, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thank you. It's good to see all of you. Joe, I'm going to start with you as the editor of the report. In your opening, the 2022 forecast report, you state, and I'm going to quote, emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic and the social injustice of the past few years, our eyes have opened to a different world. The focus of this edition of the Pharmacy Forecast acknowledges that world. How does the current report address the societal changes we've witnessed over the last two years? Thanks, Dan. We know that pharmacists have to get it right in the traditional practice aspects, and whether that's drug distribution, sterile products, clinical services, and many other things that we're well familiar with. The different world is that As pharmacists, we now need to consider other dimensions of care. So using terms like value and access, disparities, health equity, and then as well as the dimension of workforce in terms of resiliency, agility, and then preparedness. And so this edition of forecast connects those traditional aspects of pharmacy practice with the greater social factors and workforce issues. Thanks, Joe. Fran, what would you add to that in terms of the societal changes? And then, Benita, I'll turn to you as well. But, Fran, let me start with you. Thanks, Dan. And I do think that the pandemic made the reality of healthcare disparities and health equity a lot more visible. And this was very relevant in the pharmacy realm and for pharmacists. It was quite evident early on in the pandemic from an access standpoint. And I think at that point in time, whether pharmacies or pharmacists noted it, they were probably taking on a larger share of patient management and healthcare management just for the sheer reason of patients not being able to go into given facilities or to hospitals or clinics. To that end, I also think that later on in the pandemic, we saw the need for vaccines where pharmacists took a role. They've always done that, but the role became much larger and became the pinnacle and and the force and the major area in which a lot of the patients ended up needing to go to. 
And they, I think, began to see at that point in time vaccine hesitancy. I think more than what was already noticed, again, something that was made more visible during the past year and a half. So I think addressing these issues is paramount. I think the change that occurred really allowed pharmacy and pharmacists to address these issues and to become more visible. I think it was very well addressed in this article. Thanks, Fran. Benita, what about you? you? You know, your experience in Texas and Memorial Hermann, you know, what are your perspectives on the societal changes that, that have affected the forecast report this time around? Yeah, you know, to add on, Dan, to what Fran and Joe have stated is, is that the societal changes really came noticeable and visible as we were going through the pandemic. You know, early on in the pandemic, it was not as what we found out later on, meaning we didn't realize that there was a gap in disparity, a gap with kids, a gap with how to access medications, access even like testing, right? So we weren't really, we didn't know what we didn't know until I think when we really went into the pandemic and now Texas being a hot spot, or it was at that point, it became even more visibly noticeable. I think Fran hit on it the most when it came to pharmacy and pharmacists in our profession is we led the charge. You know, at Memorial Hermann, we were the first in the country to start vaccinating through a drive-through component, and it was pharmacist-led. Through my leadership, our organization was able to vaccinate 5,000 people in January of this year on one given day and pharmacy led that initiative. It was the first time where we as pharmacists were getting into the trenches of the issues that the society has been facing, which is accessing medication, accessing therapy, and pharmacists were able to be frontline in terms of being able to provide that level of care. And it was interesting to see as the panel did its work last winter, the focus on the topics that uh, Joe, that you mentioned already, and then the development of questions and ultimately the development of the report and just the way all of these factors influenced your thinking as a panel. So Joe, this is the 10th report and many pharmacy leaders are certainly familiar with it, but can you describe at a high level how the forecast observations and the recommendations are developed? Sure. And some of the things have continued in the tradition of past editions, and some things are new with this edition. So as in the past, the report relies on what's been referred to as the wisdom of the crowd. And this begins with the forecast advisory committee. They meet and provide the direction on the key issues and really try to get out in front, or some have said to look around the corner. Then once specific issues have been identified, it then goes to 300 thought leaders in health system pharmacy. And the thought leaders complete the survey indicating likelihood for the statements to come true in the next five years in their region or their institution. So for this edition, we also ask survey participants to assess pharmacy preparedness for selected scenarios. And, and that was another different element of this edition. So again, it, it builds on traditional format, but exploring the new issues as we've talked about over the last few minutes. A little bit later on in the discussion, we're going to get into a discussion with Fran about that preparedness chapter specifically, which she authored with Rita Shane of Cedar sinai But first, Benita, you know, I wanted to raise a couple of points with you. The report 
it's intended to stimulate thinking and discussion, provide a starting point for individuals and teams who want to proactively position themselves and their departments for potential future events and trends rather than being reactive to those things that occur. Can you talk about how you use the the report in your department? And I guess it's probably really more appropriate to say the pharmacy enterprise that you lead. For sure. So how we've been using the report, and I've been part of this report for many years now. So I thank Joe for his leadership to be able to continue providing this level of reporting to pharmacy leaders as myself. But what I do with the report is I actually disseminate it. I disseminate it not just to our leaders, but also to our staff. So everybody understands among the pharmacy enterprise of where pharmacy should be going. So what are we at Memorial Hermann doing well, I would say, compared to others based on the report in terms of being ahead or being in the middle of the pack or not being there at all? And then having a discussion with my leaders after we've read it to say, where do we want to go? You know, what does the next three years look like? I never talk about five because things always seem to change. But where do the next three years we want to go based on what others are doing and how they're leading the pack? And then, of course, we all want to solve world hunger. I mean, all of my leaders do. We tackle so much at a time. And through COVID, we realize that we've got to really focus our efforts because COVID, unfortunately, will be with us for a while. So then we narrow down our list of areas that we want to focus on based on what the report is telling us where we should be focusing on and what we are not working on currently. And then we start working on that as part of our strategic plan. And our strategic plan is really based on this report's guidance, which is very helpful to pharmacy leaders as myself. Benita, one of the things that, that you said that I found really fascinating is that you provide the report to your entire staff. And I'm just interested sort of what their reactions are and to some of the things, because some of the issues that are explored are pretty futuristic. And I'm interested in, you know, what the reactions are that you get from frontline staff when you share this futuristic report with them. Yeah, I get a mixture of you. So from some folks, especially our, our clinical, the ones who are very focused on clinical care, they're very excited about what the future may hold. It seems like they're the ones who are a little bit more out in front of it, where my operational staff at times, maybe I, I don't get any respondents from them. But when I go into staff meetings, I talk about the report as well. So my operational staff along with my clinical staff both understand the importance of this report and then what it means for our strategic planning. So it's a mixed bag, I would say, in terms of staff and kind of where they are in their career paths as well as where they are and where they work on a day in and day out. But the overall consensus between staff and leadership is pharmacy enterprise needs to be on the front page, on the front forethought of not just me as a pharmacy leader, but above me in the C-suite as well. Everybody wants to make sure that pharmacy is well represented, and this is one tool in our toolbox to be able to do that. Got it, got it, interesting perspectives and approach. Fran, I'm gonna turn for a minute to the chapter on delivering value that was authored by Jan Carmichael and Vivian Johnson. And in their chapter, they recommend that Pharmacy leaders should define, establish, and communicate the role pharmacists play in population health initiatives to improve outcomes for the health system and its patients. 
This was in response to panelists' opinions that uh, by 2026, 50% of health systems in their region will allocate more pharmacy staff to provide medication management to improve population health. The VA has been a leader in this area, and you certainly have been a leader specific to medication safety as well as the overall VA efforts. And I'm wondering, do you agree with the panelists in terms of the increased allocation of pharmacists to population health by 2026? Yes, uh, Dan, I absolutely agree. Population health is now, as you know, and will continue to become one of the major tools in providing optimal health care. And as you stated, the Veterans Health Administration and other healthcare systems typically use evidence-based guidelines. We use population management tools to optimally care for our patients and manage patients. And so I think this is going to only continue to become more widespread as pharmacists' roles expand, not only as um, being very optimistic here as a healthcare providers, but also in medication management. So population health and the allocation of pharmacists in that area by 2026 is paramount. Now, to that end, as it expands, there's going to need to be training in areas and for sites and systems that don't haven't done or optimized that type of tool to a large degree in a lot of hospitals or healthcare systems. So I think that there are enough groups out here, VA healthcare system, other systems that have been utilizing this from a pharmacy standpoint for many years that can serve as a model. And it will be important for healthcare systems, hospitals, corporations, states, whomever wants to expand and to enhance and deploy pharmacists in this area to make sure that they optimize the ability to do so and utilize models that are already in place. Benita, you know, Fran talks about the VA, which is a, a very organized, large, organized nationwide system. What about at the more local level with an organization such as, again, Memorial Hermann? What are your experiences with population health there? And what's your reaction to the panel's view that, you know, 50% of health systems in their region will increase the allocation of pharmacy staff to population health by 2026? Good question, actually, and, and something I've been thinking about as we've been moving forward with population health. And so, Brain and the VA have done a phenomenal job. We've known that for years. We need to now get there, right? As, as nonprofit hospitals who are, don't have the same structure as the VA system. And so do I think that we'll get there? Yes. And the reason is, is because every day we are being told by our organization, the ACO is coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And we're starting to see that the dollars, you know, we got to talk finances, the dollars on the table that are left because we aren't heavily involved in the ACO. So right now I've got a team of nine, but that team of nine manages hundreds of thousands of patients, right? They're not going to be able to touch the same, the degree of patients that we need to touch to be able to have, have a true ACO model. But so the dollars that are left behind are substantial. And when we get out of this fee-for-service model, which we will, 
in the next five years, we're going to have to place pharmacists to be able to manage population health and population registries more than just individual patients is how we are approaching it right now. That model's got to change. There's no way we're going to be able to impact each person's life the way we are doing it now based on the number of resources that we have that are allocated to us. So we're going to have to change the way we approach it and do more mo- or registry work, population health work. So Joe, when you listen to Fran talk about the needs for training and Benita talk about the way the model has to change and that we're going to really move away from fee-for-service, are student pharmacists being prepared to manage populations of patients or at least at VCU or your students being prepared in this way? Yes, it is a part of our curriculum, and I'd expect it's part of the curriculum at most schools with some variation from school to school. You know, in fact, what we've been through with COVID immunization, I think, has been a great population health learning opportunity for students well beyond how to give a vaccine injection, just the whole societal aspect of that. But saying that, I know there are limitations to how effective learning about population health is within a classroom course or a relatively short experiential rotation. So someone really interested in population health should think about a longer term perspective. We'll need to go into ongoing learning approaches, formalized degree programs or training programs or or even a structured career development plan to really be effective in population health. And as we all know, much of our pharmacy education at present is focused on care of individuals. I'm interested. I have to ask you a follow-up question that uh, you may catch you off guard a little bit here, but your book is one of the most frequently used books to teach therapeutics to student pharmacists across the country. Have you, um, your co-editors and the authors, started to integrate population health into even some of your approaches to therapeutics in the book by any chance? Sure. I won't say we're there yet. So it's clearly identified as something that has to expand within any of the teaching tools that we have, because again, the origin of it is formulated on care of individuals. So there are sections that address population health, but that's got to grow and expand in the years ahead. Thanks, Joe. Benita, your chapter that you co-authored with Shelley Wiest uh, focused on reimagining health systems for agility and resilience. Some points that Joe mentioned at the beginning as he talked about this year's report. How did you and Shelley approach the topic of agility and resilience? So Shelley and I approached that topic by first looking at what already is out there in terms of the literature, but also utilizing our own personal experiences and the experiences we've heard through others, especially through this pandemic in terms of how we are going to continue to be agile and flexible in an environment that unfortunately we just can't even predict anymore. And then resiliency. So that's not only just talked about within the pharmacy profession, it's talked about amongst all the healthcare professions as we've had now 22 months plus day in and day out of of the stress and the intensity that we've had to practice in. And so we were able to use a few different sources to come up with our part of the forecast to be able to make the recommendations that we put forth. But a lot of it was really around the experiences gained over the last 22 months as that's been something unique and, and hopefully never to be seen again, but that's where we are today. 
So was there anything, Benita, as you looked at the forecast panel's observations related to agility and resilience, was, was there anything that you found especially eye-opening just jumped out at you? When I went back and looked at the surveys, I was the eye-opening part is, wow, we are all in this same boat in terms of wanting to do it, how to do it, how we think about the future. That was the most eye-opening part to me. Instead of it being like, oh, one person's thinking this way and the other 99% are not. It was more of, wow, we're all really in the same boat and this has impacted us traumatically where we now need to really do something about this because it's so important in terms of resiliency, most importantly. You know, it's interesting. I think that speaks to, it really says a great deal about what the panels work on identifying the domains and then the questions that came up because it speaks to really being in line with what the needs are out there in practice. So it's it's interesting to hear you say that. Based on the perspectives that were offered by the respondents, where did you and Shelley focus your recommendations? Our recommendations were focused on the ability to now move forward post-pandemic and to be able to continue to have the infrastructure that we built overnight to be able to, to continue and sustain that. And so our recommendations were around continuing to be agile, continuing to be flexible, and continue to have our staff be supported through and to maintain resiliency. So our focus was much more on the future than what we've currently been doing, but how to sustain it. It's interesting. I was going to turn Joe to you, Joe, next to talk about Monica Dufarti and Lander Martinez's chapter, but it's really interesting that they also focused in their chapter on sustaining things that had begun to occur as a result of the pandemic, but their chapter was entitled Impacting Access, Disparities, and Equity, something that we've talked about already. You focused on disparities in your introduction to the report. Can you walk us through some of the key panel responses related to access, disparities, and equity? Yeah, their chapter addressed the role of pharmacists in public health and community partnerships to better serve underserved populations. And looking through all the statements, there were two that really jumped out at me in different ways. One of the more controversial statements, and it was split 50-50 right down the middle as to likelihood, was that, quote, pharmacists and pharmacy technicians will systematically screen patients for social determinants of health. So no consensus there. And, and the other part of this is we really don't know if res- respondents feel that they should do this screening. Not if it will be likely. So it'll be interesting to see if there are changes over time, if we get to ask this or a similar question in future editions. And then another interesting statement was, quote, health systems will partner with community organizations to address healthcare disparities in their communities. And the response was overwhelming for likelihood, 87% of the respondents. So this would be new territory for many health system pharmacy departments and really getting people thinking outside the walls of the pharmacy. So those were two that I thought, again, were particularly interesting. Fran, I'm gonna again turn to both you and Benita, but I'd really be interested in hearing your perspectives on that 50-50 split in terms of the uh, focus on social determinants of health. And what's your reaction there? 
You know, it's ironic that Joe said that because that was one of the ones that popped out for me as well. So following in his footsteps, I found it interesting with the split. And I was impressed with from a positive standpoint that at least part of the panel had a knowledge of assessing and the need to assess and integrate social determinants of health in their practice. So the knowledge there, I was I was quite surprised. It was even 50%, so I was happy. Where I saw there was some type of potential deficiency that needs to be addressed is how to systematically do this, how to develop tools to implement, to assess social determinants of health, how to standardize protocol so it's done the same way across different systems. So as a patient goes from one place to another, it's easily, easily interpreted the same way. So I left with them, um, very positive, always the glass half full, happy that we know now, right? Because it gives us a chance to see now where the deficiency lies. And this is something we should really start to work on. And those sites and those systems or those investigators that have done a lot in this area can come in and really help us from a pharmacy standpoint so that we can build it and better operationalize social determinants of health and how to integrate it into our system in the future. It sounds like there are some real opportunities for implementation science here to pick this up. Benita, again, your perspectives on this same question in terms of a 50-50 split and, and also what your team at Memorial Hermann is doing in terms of incorporating or integrating social determinants into the comprehensive medication management process there. Yeah, so I'm thankful Fran is glass half full person. Because when I looked at that, I was like, it may be because Houston is the, one of the most diverse cities, right, in the country. We were a hot spot. So that's our focus was around how do we now vaccinate those that don't have any access to healthcare? And it was in front of us day in and day out. And so I was surprised that only 50% had that same reaction that I did was like, we've got a problem. We really struggled in this space when it came to the pandemic, even through our drive throughs we were very aware that only folks that had a car could get vaccinated through these drive-thrus. So we weren't ignorant to that fact. We just didn't even know how to now tackle it. So we had to really put in our thinking caps as an organization to say, how do we serve this community that is underserved? Those that are, you know, ride the bus to work, those that don't have a car, those that walk. And so we put clinics at sites, like at bus stops and in communities that people don't have cars. And so I was a little surprised about the 50-50 split because I thought most of us were facing these challenges. And then from the state of Texas was very adamant to make sure we not only vaccinate those that are part of our health system, but to make sure we vaccinate the entire community as a whole, as that was the expectation and requirement to be able to get more doses to the organization. So every week we were sending in our percentages of those based on ethnic groups, based on diversity, based on a lot of different criteria to make sure we were vaccinating those who were underserved. The state was even putting us on our, on our toes or you know that saying to make sure that we were focused in on this patient population that didn't have access. Got it. Fran, turning back to your chapter that you wrote with Rita Shane, and, and as Joe mentioned before, this was part of a new approach for the forecast report this year with a focus on preparedness. Historically, there have been all of these assessments of likelihood, but never before 
what's the assessment of preparedness to really address whatever the issue happens to be? Could you walk us through the approach that was used? And then I really want to get into some of the, the gaps that you and Rita observed and how you handled those. Well, as you know, Dan, I'm new to the group. And so first and foremost, I'm truly humbled and honored to participate in the project. So thank you. To that end, although this is a new approach for forecast, it it wasn't for me because I was new to the entire program. So I really enjoyed it and then took it on as a challenge. So I think I came along at the right time. The guidance and leadership of Rita and the input for Joe from Joe Prima made it easy to kind of move forward with developing it. So what was our approach? Well, of course, we, we started with a brief outline. We took the survey and pulled the responses to the preparedness and the likely and unlikely questions and merged them for the eight specific statements so that we could glean a relationship or in some cases a lack thereof and begin to address it. And so then we divided it and kind of went back and forth to make the needed edits. And we looked at the actual results and we had the ability or the freedom where other authors had to really pretty much stick to the statements and use the traditional approach. We had the freedom to kind of comment and more importantly to commend in many instances on the potential preparedness expressed by the panel. But we did take the liberty to expand on how to address potential gaps. So what were those potential gaps in taking data that are not readily available? And and as pharmacists learning to or putting into process tools that can take those data and aggregate it from an AI standpoint. So taking unstructured data and develop that to use that in your decision-making skills. Everything that is in front of you is not in a database. It is not structured data. And many of the things that are required to assess exist in the note, exist in the results of a test. And so we realize that that is not something that's there and readily available for pharmacists. So, so we discuss the need to address that in more detail. We address the need to, and I spoke of it earlier, train pharmacists and in other areas. And I'm gonna take an area that I spent time on, and again, I mentioned it earlier, is in in standardizing and in optimizing and developing protocols for social determinants of health so that it's something that's systematic across the board. And so what we did in those instances is we took the liberty to expand on how to address those potential gaps. We recommended development of new tools, and we also recommended the enhancing training in the specific areas that I mentioned as well as others. And then we completed the chapter and able to provide these strategic recommendations accordingly. So that's that's pretty much it. And you've mentioned a couple of areas already, but there were certainly a few where there were really pretty big gaps between if you look at the differences between the likelihood of an event and the panel's assessment of preparedness. Of those, were there ones that really struck you the most? I would probably say 
the need for health systems to develop and optimize digital solutions. I think that seems to be something that needed to be important and that we need to address in more detail. I think that's one that struck me outside of what I mentioned earlier. I think that the preparedness for public health for the pharmacist, I think we were we were fine from that standpoint, but I really think there was a need to enhance our training, enhance development in that area. And also from an employee standpoint and better to make sure that we are able to identify deficiencies in certain areas and make sure that employees are deployed to areas that they need to be and that we're able to implement certain certain programs that are not readily addressed at this point in time. So I think that's it from my standpoint. Joe, what about you? As you take a step back and look at this as the editor, what were your views and your reactions on the preparedness assessments by the panel? I think there are a couple of clear takeaways, including one that the respondents felt, this was 62% felt that pharmacists or technicians were not prepared to systematically screened for social determinants of health. So a lot of work there to be done. And then if you look at another statement, being prepared to respond to emerging public health challenges, 82% felt that we were prepared. And that's possibly because of what we've been through with COVID. So again, pointing out where there's been progress and where there's work to be done. Benita, anything that jumped out at you in terms of that gap between likelihood of a future event and and preparedness? And, And again, I would ask you if, as you look at your own department, did you see consistency there in terms of preparedness? I agree with you. I think this just highlighted that there are gaps and that we need to work on. And in my own personal experience, we had gaps, I'll be honest, especially in the areas of supply chain and inventory management, which I was an expert on in that area. And so those are the gaps that we're going to have to work through. And I think COVID just highlighted that even more so than us even knowing it. And the forecast just emphasized what we already kind of knew. And it just put it into the forefront to say, hey, guys, now we really got to work on it because this could happen. It's happened. It could happen again. It's interesting to hear you say it could happen again. There's been some discussion about whether this was truly a term that's been used to black swan. There have been several pandemics since 1900, and I think all of us have probably spent much of the last two decades in some way or another preparing for a pandemic, but yet I don't know that we were prepared for for this one. But it's really interesting to hear you make that point, Benita, that it could happen again. And hopefully the forecast report is one of those things that will help departments as they position themselves to plan and prepare. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Drs. Joseph DePiro, Benita Patel, and Francesca Cunningham for joining us to discuss the 2022 ASHP, ASHP Foundation Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. Joe, Benita, Fran, thank you so much for joining me today. 
You're welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.